إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد Today then we come to the chapter Babu ma jaa fi ruqa wat tamaim the chapter which explains what has come in the evidences regarding ar-ruqa the various forms of ruqyah and at-tamaim again like the talismans and amulets so this chapter is going to be an extension of what we learned in last week's chapter. Last week's chapter was discussing the various forms of strings and bracelets and rings and other types of amulets and necklaces that people wear believing that those items will keep evil away from them, will keep their evil eye away from them, or that those items are going to bring good to them. So this chapter, it carries on with that same type of theme regarding various forms of amulets and talismans and forms of recitations and incantations that people may do believing that they protect you from the evil eye or that they bring good to you. So who wants to read? You have the other mic? No. باب ما جاء في رقى والتمائم في الصحيح عن أبي بشير الأنصاري رضي الله عنه أنه كان مع رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم في بعض أسفاره فأرسل رسولا لا يبقين في رقبة بعير قلادة من وتر أو قلادة إلا قتعت وعن ابن مسعود رضي الله عنه قال سمعت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول إن رقى والثمائم والثولة شرك رواه أحمد وعبو داود وعن عبد الله بن أخيم رضي الله عنه مرفوعا من تعلق شيئا وكل إليه رواه أحمد والترمذي التمائم شيء يعلق على الأولاد عن العين لكن إذا كان من القرآن فرخص فيه بعدهم وبعدهم لم يرخص فيه ويجأله من المنهي أنه منهم ابن مسعود رضي الله عنه والرقى هي التي تسمى العزائم وخص منه الدليل ما خل من الشرك فقد رخص فيه رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من العين والحمى والتولة شيء يضعونه يزعمون أنه يحبب المرأة إلى زوجها والرجل إلى امرأته وروى الإمام أحمد أن رويفع رضي الله عنه قال قال لي رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يا رويفع لعل الحياة ستتول بك فأخبر الناس أن من أقد لحيته أو تقلد وثرا أو استنج برجيع دابة أو عثم فإن محمد بريع منه وعن سعيد جبير قال من قطع تميمة من إنسان كان كعدل رقبه رواه وكيع 
وله عن إبراهيم قال كانوا يكرهون الثمائم كلها من القرآن وغير القرآن سهيرن الشيخ الفوزان حفظه الله تعالى سيز باب ما جاء في الرقى والتمائم Notice that the chapter heading does not say from shirk is ar-ruqa wa-tama'im. What were the previous chapters and their titles? The previous one did it not say babu mina shirki lubsul halqati wal khayti wa nahwihima? It was the chapter which said from shirk meaning from the types of shirk is to wear these items believing that they keep the evil eye away etc but this chapter doesn't say from the types of shirk is ruqya and tamaim it says what has been mentioned about them why because there are as we know certain types of ruqya that are completely permissible. Certain types of ruqya are completely permissible. So he didn't give the title to this chapter, that which is from shirk, ar-ruqa wa tamaim Because some types of ruqya are not shirk. So the title of the chapter is very precise. That which has been mentioned about the forms of ruqya and tamaim. Because we'll see in the evidences that come up, there are certain types of ruqya that are halal and permissible, and there are other types of ruqya that are impermissible and haram. Then he says, هذا الباب مناسبته لما قبله وهو باب من الشرك لبس الحلقة والخيط ونحوهما لرفع البلاء ودفعه أن هذا الباب مكمل للباب الذي قبله The connection between this chapter and the chapter that came before it is that this chapter is a completion of the previous section. It is a continuation and a completion of the previous section. So the first narration that is mentioned here, في الصحيح عن أبي بشير الأنصاري رضي الله عنه أنه كان مع رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم في بعض أسفاره فأرسل رسولا ألا يبقين في رقبة بعير قلادة من وتر أو قلادة إلا قطعت In this hadith reported by Abu Bashir Al-Ansari and it is mentioned that this particular companion was known by his kunya and it is not known what his name actually was. So Abu Bashir al-Ansari, he narrates that he was on a particular journey 
with the Prophet ﷺ. He was on a particular journey with the Prophet ﷺ, and it doesn't mention which journey, which event it was, but he was on a journey with the Messenger, and that the Messenger arsala rasulan. What does that mean? That the Messenger sent a Messenger. Meaning as we say these days, Asa'i, that the Messenger sent a Messenger in the linguistic sense of the word. Like these days, they call it in Arabic, the Sa'i al-Barid, the postman. So the Prophet ﷺ sent a person on this mission. And that mission of his was, that objective that he was given was, that he was not to allow any camel that has a string attached to it to be left. That string had to be removed. Because you remember in those olden days, they used to put strings around their camels and other animals, believing that these strings and things will keep the evil eye away from their animals and will bring goodness to their animals. So they used to put those strings around their camels' necks. The water, in particular, the string that they used to get off from the bow and arrow, those strings, they used to then tie them upon the necks of their camels, believing that this is something that prevents harm and evil coming to them, or that it removes any evil that befalls them. So the Prophet ﷺ sent a messenger to go and make sure no camels are left with these strings on them that all of them must be cut because putting those strings on the camels with that belief that they had about those strings is a belief of shirk. Thinking that these pieces of string tie them to your camels and this is going to be good luck for your camels, that is impermissible. So the Prophet ﷺ told him, in the Arabic language, with emphasis, do not allow any camel to be left with a string upon its neck from the water, from the bow and arrow string that they used to take, or any other type of string, except that it must be cut off. That was the mission the Prophet ﷺ mentioned to this man. نعم كانوا في الجاهلية يعلقون القلائد على رقاب الإبل يعتقدون أن ذلك يدفع عنها العين والضرر والنبي صلى الله عليه وسلم أراد أن يزيل هذه العادة الجاهلية ويقرر التوحيد So in the olden times in Jahiliyyah in Jahiliyyah, they had this practice which exists throughout history and to this day. 
that the people tie these strings around their animals, believing that it will protect them from the evil eye. So the Prophet ﷺ wanted to extinguish this practice from Jahiliyyah, to end this practice that they had from Jahiliyyah, putting these strings around their camels, and he wanted to establish Tawheed, to remove those beliefs and those practices they were upon, by getting rid of all of these strings from the camels, and to replace that and emphasize Tawheed. Watar, the Shaykh explains, بِفَتْحِ الْوَاوْ الْمُرَادُ بِهِ وَتَرُ الْقَوْسِ وَالْقَوْسِ آلَهْ كَانُوا يَرْمُونَ بِهَا السِّهَامِ The water is the string that they used to take off the bow and arrow. When you have the bow and you pull it back and the arrow fires, that string from the bow, they used to take that off and put it around the necks of the camels and they believe that was something that brings good luck and it removes the evil eye and it removes harm. وَكَانُوا فِي الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ إِذَا خَلَقَّهِ إِذَا خَلَقَّ الْوَتَرَ أَخَذُوهُ وَعَلَّقُوهُ عَلَى رِقَابِ الدَّوَابِ وَأَبْدَلُوهُ بِوَتَرٍ جَدِيدٍ يَعْتَقِدُونَ أَنَّ هَذَا الْوَتَرَ الْقَدِيمِ أَلَّذِي اسْتُعْمِلَ وَرُمِيَ بِهِ أَنَّهُ يَدْفَعُ الْعَيْنِ عَنِ الْإِبَلِ So initially, when they used to make the bows to fire the arrows from, you have the string on it, and you fire the arrows. Eventually that string it wears out and it becomes loose and it needs to be replaced with a new string on that bow so that it will fire the arrows properly again. So when it used to wear out, they used to take it off and that worn string, the used string, they used to put those around the necks of the camels believing this was a string that was used in the bow and arrow to fire the arrows upon the enemy and here and there. So that used string, they would use it on the camel now, believing that is what brings the goodness and removes the evil eye. وَقَوْلُهُ أَوْقِلَادَ In the narration, you see that the narrator says that the Prophet told them not to leave any camel with a string from the bow on it or any other type of necklace or string whether it was from the bow or not. And that is because the narrator was in doubt as to which one the Prophet mentioned. Had the Prophet mentioned specifically about the strings that were taken from the bows, or was it any type of string that was attached around the camel's neck? The narrator was not sure, and that's why he mentioned in the narration, قِلَادَ min water أَوْ قِلَادَ that it was a string from the bow or any string. And this is, as the scholars, they say, from the piety of the narrators, that he forgot or wasn't sure, was the narration the string of the bow specifically or generally anything? So he highlights in the narration it was one of the two. Doesn't just pick one, and leave that as the narration rather highlights in the narration it was one of the two that was mentioned. فَعَلَى كُلِّ حَالٍ فِيهِ دَلِيلٍ 
على منع هذا الشيء من أي نوع كان. But in any case, the reality is, as with all of the other evidences together, that it would be any type of string that they have this aqidah in, that they believe it is something which will prevent the evil eye, then whether it is from the bow or not, the rulings as a whole would be applicable. So, ala kulli hal, fihi dalilun ala man'i hadha shay min ayy naw'in kan, sawa'an kana min watar, aw min ghayrih, ma dama anna al-maqsuda minhu aqida fasida. So, as long as they have that incorrect belief regarding it, whether it is from the bow or any other type of string or necklace, then it would be impermissible and the rulings would apply. أَمَّا الْقَلَائِدِ الَّتِي لَا يُقْصَدُ مِنْهَا مَقْصَدْ شِرْكِي مِثْلْ قَلَائِدَ الْهَدِي الَّذِي يُهْدَى لِلْبَيْتِ الْعَتِيقِ فَلَا حَرَجْ فِيهَا As for other types of items that may be put on an animal even or on a person that are not connected to this belief whatsoever. A person wears some type of necklace. We're not going to say these narrations apply to you. A person wears some type of necklace, nothing to do with this, purely maybe as a piece of jewelry, then this doesn't apply. What we're talking about here is when they used to wear items, strings, necklaces, amulets, talismans, rings, bracelets, with an intention and a belief that these items have some ability or are a means to keeping the evil eye away and bringing good to a person. If that is not the objective, it's a random piece of jewelry, then so be it, there's nothing wrong with that. Except that those ones must be cut, the Prophet told them. And the point of this therefore is Ashahidu min al hadith Tahrimu aqd al qalaid ala al dawab Aw ala al adamiyin biqasdi anna thalika yadfa'u al ayn Lianahu la yadfa'u dharr wa la yadfa'uhu illa Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala The point of this narration is very clear then. It highlights the impermissibility, it's haram, to attach any types of these strings or necklaces or bows upon an animal or upon a person with the belief that these items keep away the evil eye or that they keep away harm because we know the only method of keeping away the evil eye and the harm is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah is the one who will keep away harm from a person or bring good to a person, not these items. So anybody wearing those types of items on their animals, on themselves, on their cars and their homes, believing put this on the door, on the window, it will keep the evil eye away, then all of that is impermissible. In the Quran it mentioned, وَإِنْ يَمْسَسْكَ اللَّهُ بِذُرْ فَلَا كَاشِفَ لَهُ إِلَّا هُ 
وإن يريدك بخير فلا راد لفضله لاتف الله سبحانه وتعالى decrease some harm upon you loss of wealth or loss of health or loss of a beloved one whatever it might be if Allah decrees some difficulty upon you then no one can remove it فَلَا كَاشِفَ لَهُ إِلَّهُ No one can remove it from you then except He except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala وَإِنْ يُرِدِكَ بِخَيْرٍ فَلَا رَادَّ لِفَضْلِهِ And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees some good for you, then nobody can repel that, nobody can take that away from you, uh, nobody can remove that virtue from you. If Allah decrees that goodness for you, then it will certainly occur for you. In another ayah it mentions, مَا يَفْتَحِ اللَّهُ لِلنَّاسِ مِنْ رَحْمَةِ فَلَا مُمْسِكَ لَهَا That which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala presents or opens up to the people of mercy, the mercy that Allah gives to the people, then nobody can prevent or stop or withhold the mercy of Allah coming to those people. وَمَا يُمْسِكْ فَلَا مُرْسِلَ لَهُ مِنْ بَعْدِهِ And whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala holds back, then there is nobody who can give that to the people. If Allah holds back some mercy or some affair from a person, then nobody can give that affair to that person. So that is the opening very clear narration. The Prophet ﷺ commanded him, told him, do not leave any camel with these types of strings that they put on them, believing it protects from the evil eye, except that you cut those strings off. Because they are a form of shirk that is being practiced by the people. The second narration here, عن ابن مسعود رضي الله عنه قال سمعت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول إن الرقى والتمائم والتوله شرك رواه أحمد وأبو داود In this hadith of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud رضي الله عنه Abdullah ibn Mas'ud الشيخ الفوزان gives a small biography of him Abdullah ibn Mas'ud ibn Ghafil al-Hudhali al-Sahabi al-Jaleel min a'immati al-ilm al-ma'roofin fi al-Sahaba wa min ashhar al-qura'i li kitab Allah azza wa jal wa huwa alladhi u'jaba an-nabiy sallallahu alayhi wa sallam bi qira'atihi wa qala man arada an yasma' al-Qur'ana ghaddan tariyan kama unzil falyasma' ila qira'ati ibn Umm Abd Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, one of the great companions, one of the scholars of the companions, known for his knowledge and known for his beautiful recitation of the Qur'an, such that the Prophet ﷺ was impressed and pleased with the recitation of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. And there's a narration the Shaykh quoted, the hadith, where the Prophet ﷺ directed the people to listen to the recitation of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. 
if they wish to hear the Qur'an as it was revealed. And so, this is Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, one of the great companions. He is the one who narrates this hadith. He says, سَمِعْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ يَقُولُ I heard the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم say, إِنَّ الرُّقَى That indeed the forms of ruqya and recitation, وَالتَّمَائِمْ And the various amulets and bracelets and other affairs people wear, tiwala along the same, all of those are shirk. This narration with this wording, there is some speech regarding it, whether this narration with this wording is accurate or not. However, even if the narration upon this exact wording is not established, this is one of those cases where the scholars, they say, Al-ma'na sahih. Even if that wording as a hadith, with those words exactly is not established, the meaning of the narration is completely accurate and valid. Proven by the rest of the Qur'an and Sunnah. Proven by the rest of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, what is being mentioned in the hadith, the meaning of it, is absolutely accurate, even if the hadith in terms of its exact wording may have issues in its authenticity. So the meaning of the narration is absolutely valid. And they mention that there is a story behind this narration, behind this hadith, when the Prophet said that the ruqa and the tama'im and the tiwala, these various affairs people rely on, that they are shirk. The story behind it is that Abdullah ibn Mas'ud ra'a alam ra'atihi Zainab, it's mentioned that Abdullah ibn Mas'ud anhu, one day returned home and saw on his wife Zainab this string around her neck. A string around her neck. وَقَالَ لَأَنْتُمْ يَا آلَ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ قَالَتْ إِنَّ عَيْنِي كَانَتْ تَطْرَفْ فَأَذْهَبُ إِلَى فُلَانِ الْيَهُودِ فَيَرْقَاهَا فَتَكُفْ قَالَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْ إِنَّمَا ذَلِكَ شَيْطَانٌ يَنْخَسُهَا بِكَفِّهِ فَإِذَا رُقِيَ كُفْ ثُمَّ قَالْ سَمِعْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ سَلَّمْ يَقُولْ إِنَّ الرُقَى وَالتَّمَائِمُ وَالتَّوَلَى and then he mentions to her that you are free and sufficient, uh, you have sufficiency and freedom from being upon shirk. So she says to him, my eye was bleeding. Blood was coming from her eye. That a lot of blood was coming out of her eye. So she said she went to a particular Jew and he did ruqya upon her. And then this is how she ended up with this necklace or this uh, string. So then that's when Abdullah ibn Mas'ud says to her that the Prophet, I heard him say, That these forms of recitation and these other strings and amulets are shirk. That's the background that is mentioned regarding this particular narration. 
فهو لما قطع هذا الخيط وأنكر على زوجته هذا الفعل ذكر الدليل من سنة رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إن الرقى والتمائم والتولى شر So when Abdullah ibn Mas'ud cut that string from his wife's neck, from his wife's neck, from Zainab's neck, he cut it off, and then he quoted to her this narration, this hadith, as the proof that the Prophet ﷺ said these ruqa, these tama'im and tiwala, they are shirk. So that again emphasizes the general meaning of these two chapters. Anyone wearing strings on their wrists and their necks and other amulets and other types of necklaces that the imam gives them, wear this and you'll be safe. Put this string around your wrist and keep it tight there, you'll be okay. No jinn will come near you. No evil eye will happen to you. All of these types of items they wear around their necks and their wrists and other places, then they are impermissible, the one who wears them believing they are a means to protect you from the evil eye and to protect you from any other form of evil. Then we come to the next narration. An Abdullah ibn Ukaim al-Juhani marfu'an man ta'allaqa shay'an wukila ilayhi. In this hadith of Abdullah ibn Ukaim and Again, Sheikh Al-Fawzan gives a brief background as to who Abdullah ibn Ukaim was. He says, Abdullah ibn Ukaim was alive at the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And he met with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But it is not established as to whether he actually narrated anything from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, لم يثبت له سماع من النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم. فيكون تحديثه عن الرسول من باب المرسل، لأنه لم يسمع من النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم. ولهذا قال شيخ مرفوعا. So Abdullah ibn Ukaim. He was alive at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, but it is not proven that he actually narrated any hadith, that he actually heard hadith from the Prophet and narrated them. So in that case, you have a situation of someone who was alive at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, but it's not proven whether he actually heard any hadith from the Prophet. So when he narrates a hadith, when he narrates a hadith saying the Prophet ﷺ said such and such, then the ruling upon that is that it is mursal. Mursal al-Sahaba as they say, companion was alive at the time, but it's not proven that he actually heard any hadith directly from the Prophet. Because sometimes you can have a companion narrating a hadith, but he's not the one who heard it from the Prophet. Maybe he heard it from another companion who heard it from the Prophet ﷺ. Some of the scholars actually say that you cannot be considered a companion 
unless you narrate a hadith from the Prophet Some of the scholars in their definition of a companion say that. They say a person cannot be considered a companion unless he actually narrated hadith from the Prophet The correct opinion though is that this is not a condition. It is not a condition to be a companion that you must have narrated hadith from the Prophet It is sufficient to be a companion that you met the Prophet and that you believed in him at the time and that you die upon Islam. A very precise definition of who a companion is. Man laqiyya an-nabiyya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Who in terms of the aqil, man laqiyya. Whomsoever met. Not whatever met the Prophet. Because some people say Mount Uhud is a prophet. Uh, a companion, sorry. Companion. Some people say Mount Uhud is a companion, believed in the messenger, met the messenger, and it's a, an object, so it's not about dying upon Islam. All of the objects, they do the tasbih of Allah. But that cannot be, because the definition the scholars have highlighted, man laqiyya, whomsoever, a person who met the Prophet wasallam, and you say met, and you do not say whomsoever saw, the Prophet ﷺ, because some companions were blind and they never saw the messenger, but they met him and they spoke with him and they traveled with him. Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum, for example, whomsoever met the Prophet, doesn't say in the definition, whomsoever met Muhammad ﷺ, in the definition, whomsoever met the Prophet, Meaning, to be considered a companion, you have to have met him after he became a prophet. After the revelation began, whomsoever met the prophet, believing in him. Meaning, if somebody met the prophet, but this somebody was a non-Muslim at the time, and he met the prophet. Then years later, after the prophet died perhaps, this somebody ended up becoming a Muslim. So he had met the Prophet. And he is now believing in the Prophet. And he ended up dying as a believer. But is he a companion? No. Because at the time when he met the Prophet, he wasn't a believer at the time. Met the Prophet believing in him and died upon Islam. Meaning if somebody met the Prophet believing in him, but then apostated. And there are very few, few examples of this apostated afterwards, then he wouldn't be considered a companion unless he returned back to Islam before dying. Then it would return back to him the original ruling and he is a companion. So here, Abdullah ibn Ukaim, he narrates this narration where he says that the Prophet mentioned, مَنْ تَعَلَّقَ شَيْئًا وُكِلَ إِلَيْهِ Whomsoever hangs anything upon himself, then he will be left to it. You will be left in the care of that thing.
Whomsoever hangs anything upon himself, then you will be left to that thing. Allah will leave you to trust into that thing and see whatever that thing can do for you. مَنْ تَعَلَّقَ شَيْئًا وُكِلَ إِلَيْهِ Whomsoever hangs something like this, then you are left to that item. سَوَاءً قِلَادَ أَوْ تَمِيمَ أَوْ حِرْزًا مِنَ الْحُرُوزِ أَوْ خَيْطًا أَوْ حَرْقًا يَعْنِ عَلَّقَ قَلْبَهُ بِشَيْءٍ أي شيء يَظُنُّ أَنَّهُ يَنْفَعْ وَيَضُرْ وُكِلَ إِلَيْهِ وَكَلَاهُ اللَّهُ إِلَى مَا تَعَلَّقَ بِهِ وَهَذِهِ عُقُوبَةٌ مِنَ اللَّهِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى وَإِهَانَةٌ لَهُ مِنَ اللَّهِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى لِأَنَّ اللَّهَ إِذَا تَخَلَّى عَنْهُ وَوَكَلَاهُ إِلَى غَيْرِهِ هَلَكَ So the narration highlights a punishment that Allah places upon that individual who wears these items and has his heart attached to those items, believes this necklace, this ring, this ring is going to keep the evil eye away, is going to keep the jinn away, is going to keep magic away. His heart is connected to these items. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala leaves him to that item. And if Allah leaves a person, to his own devices, leaves a person to his own affairs, Allah leaves a person, then that is certainly a punishment upon a person and that person will be destroyed. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala abandons that person, then certainly he will be destroyed. So that is what is mentioned in this narration. A person who attaches his heart to any other item, this necklace, this string, this amulet, this ring, this band, believing that will keep the evil eye away and give him goodness and keep away harm, then that person is left to his items and Allah leaves him and that is certainly destruction for that person. فَهَذَا فِيهِ خَطَرٌ عَظِيمٌ In this therefore is a great danger. وَفِيهِ حَثٌ عَلَىٰ أَنْ يُعَلِّقَ الْإِنسَانَ قَلْبَهُ بِاللَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلْ وَأَنْ يَعْتَقِدَ أَنَّهُ لَا يَنْفَعْ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَلَا يَذَرْ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَلَا يَشْفِي إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَلَا يَرْزُقْ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَلَا يُعْطِي وَلَا يَمْنَعْ إِلَّا اللَّهِ يَتَوَكَّلْ عَلَى اللَّهِ مَعَ أَخْذِهِ بِالْأَسْبَابِ there is an encouragement in this narration for a person to make sure that their heart is connected only to Allah and that he believes no one can benefit him except Allah and no one can harm him except Allah and no one can cure him except Allah. No one can provide for him except Allah. No one can give him or prevent from him except Allah. So he puts all of his trust into Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala along with taking the permissible means. We're going to get to that in the chapter regarding tawakkul. That the reality of tawakkul is that you take the means. 
So you take ma'akhdihi bil asbab al mubaha alati ja'alaha Allah asbaban kadawa al mubah wa ghayri dhalika min al asbab al mubaha. For example, the medicines that are permissible, you can take those but put your trust in Allah. And other than that, from the affairs that are permissible, you can take those means but you put your trust in Allah ultimately, not in those things. Because even if something is a legislated means, <coughs> if something is a means, so now it is permissible to take that means, but it is not permissible to attach your heart to the means, even if they are legitimate, permissible means, because ultimately they are only means. You take the means, but you do not attach your heart to the means. So here the shaykh says you put your trust in Allah and you take the necessary means, because otherwise... If a person claims that they are putting their trust in Allah, but they are not taking the means, then this can be what is known as a tawakul, a pretense of tawakul. And they give the example of somebody who says, Oh Allah, bless me with children. Oh Allah, give me a righteous child. Oh Allah, give me a righteous daughter. Give me righteous children. And he's making dua and dua and dua. Give me righteous children, O oh Allah, righteous offspring, O oh Allah. But he hasn't even got married. married yet. So then where is your righteous offspring going to come from? The scholars, they say, this is not the reality of tawakkul. I have put my tawakkul in Allah, Allah will give me the righteous offspring. You say, brother, okay, did you get married yet? No. So then where is your righteous offspring going to come from? You take the means of marriage. And then make your dua and put your trust in Allah. And they have some poetry, I forgot it now. They mention about a man lying down on his bed. Oh Allah, give me righteous children. And he hasn't got married, he hasn't done anything on his bed. Allah, give me righteous children. Where are your righteous children going to come from? You have not taken any means. So, when a person takes the means and puts his trust in Allah, then that is the reality of the tawakkul. So all of the affairs, they return back to Allah. فَقَوْلُهُ مَنْ تَعَلَّقَ شَيْئًا وُكِلَ إِلَيْهِ قَاعِدَةً عَامَّةً تَعُمْ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ يُعَلِّقُ الْإِنسَانُ قَلْبَهُ بِهِ مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلَ مِنْ بَشَرْ أَوْ حَجَرْ أَوْ شَجَرْ أَوْ قَبْرْ أَوْ حَلْقَةً أَوْ خَيْتْ أَوْ تَمِيمًا أَوْ غَيْرِ ذَلِكَ this principle that whoever attaches his heart to something other than Allah, that Allah will then leave that person to his thing, Allah will leave him and abandon him to his thing, then that applies as a general principle to anything that a person attaches his heart to. It could be that you attach your heart to a person, believing this person is the means for your goodness and the means for your harm to be away from you. You believe it's all about this person and you are completely attached to the power of this person. As many of the misguided ones are, from the Sufis and their kinds of likes, 
They are attached to their imams to this level. The imam, if he wipes you, then you're okay. You'll be safe and there'll be no jinn and there'll be no magic. You need to go get wiped by the imam. They have all of their trust and their attachment in this person. Or whether it is in a rock or a tree or a grave, attachment to the deceased in the grave. They tell you he was a great imam, he was this, he was that. He's from the awliya of Allah. And so the people, they have their attachment to the shrine or to this grave and to this tomb or to a ring or any other type of band or necklace or string, amulet, whatever it might be. If you make your attachment into those items, believing they are going to protect you, they are going to keep the evil eye away, then all of that falls into the generality of these narrations that you are left to those things. فَفِي هَذَا وُجُوبِ التَّوَكُّلِ عَلَى اللَّهِ وَالنَّهِي عَنِ الْاِعْتِمَادِ عَلَى غَيْرِ اللَّهِ فِي جَلْبِ خَيْرٍ وَدَفْعِ ضُرْ وَالْقُرْآنُ يُقَرِّرُ هَذَا فِي آيَاتٍ كَثِيرًا So this highlights therefore the obligation of having your trust purely in Allah and that He alone will bring the good for you He alone will remove the harm from you. And that the Qur'an, it emphasizes that point in many ayat and many places. And we'll see some of those in the rest of the book. Then, in the section coming up now, there are some explanations of certain types of items that they used to wear and the issue regarding the Qur'an. He says, التمائم شيء يعلقونه على الأولاد يتقون به العين That the tamaim, the tamaim, they were something that they used to hang off the necks of their children, believing that this item, if hung upon the children, will keep the children protected from the evil eye. يَتَّقُونَ بِهِ الْعَيْنِ ثُمَّ قَالَ مُفَصِّلًا الْحُكَمْ فِي هَذَا But then the issue that comes up, and many people will claim, they'll say, yes, we do that. We put something on our children, but what we have put on them in the necklace is only Qur'an, they will say. That we wrote the Qur'an on a small piece of paper, folded it all up, put it inside of this small necklace thing, and then we hang that on our children. Pure Qur'an, nothing else. They'll say, how can you say these narrations are talking about the Qur'an? The Qur'an, is it not a cure? The Qur'an is certainly a cure. Physically for your body as well? Can be. The Qur'an is a cure. So they may say, we are only putting exclusively 100%. It is Qur'an. Open it, check the paper. It's only Qur'an in there. That's what they claim. And one of the mashayikh, he said, once when he was teaching this, and they got to these kinds of chapters, that the students uh, in the class... They all began saying, Shaykh, Shaykh, him. 
because one of the kids, he was wearing one. So he, one of the mashayikh, he said, when I was teaching this, and we got to this part, everybody in the class, they started saying, Sheikh, Sheikh, him, him. So then the Sheikh said, we spoke to him. And the child said, yes, my parents, they gave me some item, and they wrote Quran, just Quran in it. And the way they wear it in this particular country where he was teaching, they wear it on your head, you put it under your hat. You put the hat on, the, the hat, and then the shimag or whatever, and this item is in the hat on your head, underneath. And you put your hat on, put everything on, and then you go out like that, and it stays there, stuck there under your hat. So he said, yes, I've got one. My parents told me to wear one under my hat, but it's just Quran. Piece of paper tied together with something under my hat. It's pure Quran. So the sheikh said, okay, allow us to see it. They took it. They opened it up. Yes, there were uh, Quran. There was Quran on it. Lines of Quran, small piece of paper. When they opened it up, some lines of Quran. And then in between the lines of the Quran, all types of other speech that certainly was not Quran or symbols and things that were certainly nothing to do with the Quran. And the Shaykh said, the reality is for probably the majority of people who claim it's only Quran, that it may well be ayat of the Quran in there. It's Quran and Arabic what you see. But there will be other items, symbols and other words and other things inserted into that such that it is no longer actually pure Qur'an. The Shaykh said many of the occasions that's what you will find. In many of the instances that's what you will find. I saw one once how the Qur'an is written when you open up the Mus'haf, the Arabic writing of the Qur'an, it's very distinct. The way that it's written, if you saw a poster and the writing was written in that particular way, you'd know this is Qur'an. There was one particular, like a poster type of thing. And it was written exactly like the prints of the Qur'an, how the Arabic is in the Qur'an. And you look at it all and you think these are ayat of the Qur'an. And then you look and you look and you look and you're trying to work out where are these ayat in the Qur'an from. And it's written like the Qur'an and it's got the circles to indicate the end of the ayah. And then the next part starting and a circle to indicate the end of the ayah. And the next part. And you look and you look and you look and we realized in the end, these words, yes it was Arabic, yes it had the ayat numbers and these things. None of them were ayat of the Qur'an. They looked like and they appeared like they were Qur'an. Circles at the end and all the symbols and things to make it look like when you open a mushaf and you read ayat and circle, end of the ayah, new ayah. And it looks like it's a section of the Qur'an that's been copied out, ayat of the Qur'an. And the reality was none of those words or none of those sentences were ayat of the Qur'an. So the reality when people claim that it's only Qur'an, the reality in most cases will be if you check, just to make sure then you will see that the majority perhaps are not only Qur'an anyway. But, having said that, and most likely that is the reality, if somebody does persist and says, but no, it is only Qur'an, check it, and it is only Qur'an, then can you still tell them, no, you can't wear this? If it is genuinely, purely just Qur'an, 
um, what if you need to go to the toilet you, and um, put, put the Quran in the toilet with Quran? So then in that case, we shouldn't. And, um, as it says, um, we're not allowed to do any, anything for All right, that's good. That's good. We'll come to your answers here now as well. So, لكن إذا كان هذا المعلق من القرآن If this item that is being worn is purely Qur'an. Open it up and it is just Qur'an. They've copied out some parts of the Qur'an, nothing else, no symbols, no other writing. It is purely Qur'an. Then, فَقَدْ رَخَّصَ فِيهِ بَعْضُ salaf. Some of the salaf allowed it. Some of the salaf allowed it. But listen to this section very carefully. Some of the salaf allowed it. يعني إذا كانت التميمة مكتوبة من القرآن فقد رخص فيها بعض السلف مثل عبد الله بن عمرو بن العاص وعائشة رضي الله عنهم لأنها من القرآن والتشافي بالقرآن ليس فيه محذور شركي فهو كلام الله عز وجل Some of the salaf like Abdullah ibn Amr ibn العاص and Aisha they said if it is purely Qur'an, then that isn't a problem and you can't associate that to any affair of shirk. Because Qur'an is a cure and you can seek cure from the Qur'an. So somebody could say, yes, I am seeking cure from the Qur'an from evil eye. You can seek cure from the Qur'an. And so some of the Salaf, they said, if it is purely Qur'an, then you can't put that into the same category as other types of strings and necklaces and amulets that are not Qur'an. Those are the ones, obviously, they are shirk, putting your dependence into those things. But in the Qur'an or taking the Qur'an as a means of cure, is that permissible? It is. Taking the Qur'an as a means of cure is permissible. So some of the Qur'an, uh, some of the uh, Salaf, they said, yes, it's okay. وَبَعْضُهُمْ But some of them لَمْ يُرَخِّصْ فِيهِ Did not give any permission about this. They did not give any exemption to this. They said, even the Qur'an, even if it's purely Qur'an, you can't wear that like that. Some of the Salaf did not allow it. وَيَجْعَلُهُ مِنَ الْمَنْهِيِّ عَنْهُ and they considered it, just like all the others, as prohibited and impermissible. Minhum, from amongst them, is Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, radiyallahu anhu. And there were others besides him. Uh, that's going to come later, Ibrahim al-Nakha'i. And uh, he was the student of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. فَهَذَا اخْتِلَافُ السَّلَفِ فِي تَعْلِيقِ التَّمَائِمْ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ فَقَدْ اِخْتَلَفُوا فِي هَذَا عَلَى قَوْلَيْنِ So the Salaf, they had two statements about Qur'an, pure Qur'an. Some of them said it is permissible, and their angle or their point of view 
was that there are evidences clearly telling us that the Qur'an is a cure. And you can seek cure from it. When you do ruqya, you recite Qur'an. That is a means of ruqya, to recite the Qur'an. So looking at it from that point of view, they said, Qur'an you can't prohibit. If somebody's wearing Qur'an, that's permissible from the evidences. Taking cure from the Qur'an, etc. And it is ultimately the speech of Allah. The Qur'an is the speech of Allah. It's not like you're wearing the speech of this person or that person or any other writing. It is purely the speech of Allah. And seeking cure from the speech of Allah is mashru' that is legislated. But others took the opinion, no, it is impermissible, even if it's the Qur'an. And their point of view was, basically, that all of the narrations we've been talking about last week and this week, all of the narrations talking about the impermissibility of strings and necklaces and amulets and bracelets and anything that a person wears, believing it brings him some cure or goodness, those narrations, did any of them anywhere mention except the Qur'an? All of them were completely open narrations. Whoever attaches his heart to anything, whoever wears any type of necklace or string or bracelet or band, anything, those narrations are all completely open. None of them are restricted in any way. None of them have exemptions in them in any way. Therefore, they said, those narrations are applicable to every type of item that a person may wear and hang upon himself, including even if it is purely Qur'an. Because the narrations prohibiting those things are completely open with no exemptions in them. If the Qur'an was an exemption, it would be in those narrations. It would say, Ta'allaqa, etc., etc., illa al-Qur'an, except the Qur'an. There's not a single exemption anywhere. So they said, we can't make an exemption for anything, including the Qur'an. وَبِنَاءً عَلَى ذَلِكَ اخْتَلَفَ الْفُقَهَا مِنْ بَعْدِ الصَّحَابَةِ فِي هَذِهِ الْمَسْأَلَةِ عَلَى قَوْلَيْنِ وَالصَّحِيحِ And the correct opinion. From those two, or in fact, before we get to the correct opinion, the opinion of Aisha radiallahu anha, for example, amongst others, saying that it's okay, there are certain points of background to understand regarding that opinion. One of the major points of background to understand regarding that opinion, because many people, they may come to you now and say, well, there you go, then it's allowed. Aisha radiallahu anha said it's allowed. One of the main points regarding the opinion of Aisha radiallahu anha, as the scholars have mentioned, is that she was talking about a situation where a person wears purely Qur'an, but does not put his trust and attachment to the Qur'an, because like we said, you don't put your trust into the means, rather ultimately you put your trust in Allah. So a person doesn't put their trust into these items, meaning generally a person understands the correct aqidah. A person who fully understands the correct aqidah, 
then perhaps this opinion would apply to them and that's what Aisha was talking about. Aisha radiallahu anha would never have meant and did not mean that a person who is upon misguided aqidah and believes that will save him now, he can wear it. Impossible. The opinion of Aisha radiallahu anha is based upon a prerequisite of having the absolute and correct aqidah regarding all these affairs. If you understand that, then you know 99% of the people who are going to use this as an evidence, already it is not an evidence for them. Because the vast majority of the people who wear these things have no understanding of the reality of aqidah. Rather, they just think, wear this and that's it. No evil eye, no jinn, nothing's going to harm you if you wear this. So their aqidah is not sound. Their aqidah, their aqidah is not grounded. And the opinion of Aisha only works upon the basis of being established in the correct aqidah. Secondly, and this is important as well, the opinion of Aisha radiallahu anha that you could do it if it's purely Qur'an. Did she therefore do it? And did any of the other salaf therefore do it? The scholars have said it is not narrated that any of the salaf actually did it. So this was just a principle speech. That principally speaking, Quran is the speech of Allah, etc. Therefore, it's permissible. But did they actually do that? No. Did Aisha actually wear one then? No. Did any of the other companions or salaf actually wear them? No. The scholars have said it is not reported that the salaf ever actually wore them. So this was just a statement upon principle. Principally speaking, if you're upon the correct aqidah, etc., it could be okay. Nobody actually ever did it. So there are those two main reasons to look at. The first one is the main one, the prerequisite of upright aqidah. And the majority of people who wear these things do not have the prerequisite of upright aqidah. Then there are other reasons why the opinion that it's impermissible is stronger. From them is what was mentioned here as well, that there are certain side points that impact upon this issue. If you put Qur'an on a child or even yourself, are you going to remember to take it off every time you go to relieve yourself, to answer the call of nature in the toilet? Rather, it's going to stay, especially for the child, it's going to be there. The child goes out and plays football on the field, running around, falling in the mud. And this is all being degraded. The Quran is being degraded by entering into the bathroom with it, going and running around and falling around in the mud with it. And that child, maybe he is also engaging in other activities that are not suitable and appropriate. So wearing the Quran can lead to its degradation and that's another reason why you wouldn't do it another reason is what we said about the evidences that the evidences about not wearing these things are all completely open and encompass everything there is no exception in them and another reason the sheikh mentions is connected to the point about the prerequisite of aqidah because most people don't have that if they were to wear it, even if it was pure Qur'an, it would be a means for them that could lead on to other affairs of more serious.
shirk for them because they're doing it with their attachment into this, not understanding the reality of aqidah and tawakkul upon Allah. So it opens up doors to them that can lead into more harmful affairs. So for those reasons, the correct opinion is that it is not permissible to wear it even if it is purely Qur'an. It is not permissible even if it is purely Qur'an. That is the stronger opinion. That is the correct opinion. That's where we'll stop for today then. The second half of the chapter. We'll do it from next week inshallah ta'ala. Two or three more narrations to go. We'll conclude those from next time inshallah ta'ala next week. Somebody asking about reciting Surah Kaf on Fridays. There are narrations about it. There are narrations about the recitation of uh, Surah Al-Kaf on Fridays. And some of the scholars have mentioned those narrations and do believe it is a sunnah to do so. Some of the major scholars too. There are discussions about it and the exact authenticity of the narration but there are senior scholars who do allow this and they do believe it to be legitimate and authentic to recite it on Fridays Allah alam anybody else in the walls in the walls on the walls on the wall yeah yeah, so putting Qur'an on, the, no, in the walls, I thought maybe some of them as well, in the houses, before you plaster it up, put some Qur'an inside, barakah for the house. On the wall, putting posters of the Qur'an on the wall, you get these posters now, a hundred pounds, mashallah, with a gold frame around it, and ayatul kursi, or qul, wallahu ahad, qul, yawil kafirun, all these kinds of things you get in posters to put on the walls. As Shaykh al-Thaymeen, rahimahullah ta'ala, said, it is not, suitable to do that because the Quran was not revealed for decoration and that's what people are doing you're not putting people say but I leave it there it reminds me you don't need to pay a hundred pounds with a gold border on it to remind you that's decoration and you know people are putting these things in their homes to beautify their homes and decorate their homes a hundred pounds two hundred pounds beautiful calligraphy on how it's done and colors and all these things, these are decorations. As Shaykh al said, the Qur'an is not for decoration. And you don't even this argument about, but it reminds me. It reminds you what? How much are you going to memorize of the wall? You're going to memorize from the Mus'haf, you're going to sit and you're going to listen and read and memorize. You're not going to memorize the Qur'an from a poster on the wall. So the reality is, as Shaykh al said, the Qur'an is not for decoration and posters on the wall. No, that's it. So some of the scholars or, or uh, uh, the Salaf who viewed it permissible, that kind of reasoning is from it. They say this is the speech of Allah and you're allowed to seek refuge in the words of Allah. You're allowed to seek cure in the words of Allah. So therefore it should be okay. That's some of their reasonings. But the other scholars, they said all of those reasonings are good. They exist. You can use them, but not in this particular method. So the dua there, for example, it's a dua that you recite. It's not a dua that you put on your neck. So they said, yes, those evidences are all legitimate, 
but they are not applicable in this specific context. Because in this specific context, we have evidences prohibiting wearing any types of amulets, etc. And the Qur'an would fall into that. So all of those are okay in their other contexts, except this one, because there are evidences prohibiting us from this one. What would the Islamic um, opinion be on it in terms of what it be? Makruh, mubah, haram, uh, bid'ah. How would you categorize the acts of somebody who does that? No, you can't really go anywhere beyond saying it's permissible. If a person was upon all of those conditions, the prerequisites of aqidah, it's a situation that barely exists. It's a situation in reality that barely exists. But if it did, then it's possible. If it did, and it doesn't really. If it did, then the ruling there would be, according to all of that, allowed. The opinion is there, and the scholars have mentioned it. And it's not something you can say explicitly that it's haram. We have said now it's impermissible and it shouldn't be done with multiple reasons. But if somebody genuinely was outside of all of those reasons, then in that very small, narrow situation, it's okay. But, for, uh, but you wouldn't do it. Still, because of all these other narrations and all of these other evidences, it's not something that should be done though. How would the justice so if somebody was to do that from one of the other sects and so forth and believe it's permissible, there would be no point in criticizing them for the act specifically. The no, no, they would. Because they are not in that very small situation we've just mentioned. They're in the very big situation where they are doing it upon a lack of the prerequisite of the correct aqidah. So they are to be criticized for it. You can ask them and you can talk to them and you can debate them on these issues. Why are you wearing this? What is the affair regarding this? They are not doing it upon the proper prerequisite of Aqidah. They are doing it upon the more misguided understandings of Aqidah. So they are to be questioned about these affairs. You cannot say they are not to be because there is an opinion X, Y, and Z. That opinion is a very small opinion in a very small situation, which doesn't apply to any of these people. Hmm. Imagine if we are now in a, a situation and somebody uh, is wearing one of these uh, necklaces with the Quran in them, and and they sp- and you talk with them, and they do not agree with you. Uh, should should you argue with them more? Or no, خلاص, you give somebody da'wah, you explain to them, you tell them, give them the evidences. If they don't listen to you, there's nothing more you can do. You don't have to carry on arguing with them. If they're your own family, then keep giving them da'wah, keep trying to explain to them with patience and with good speech. But otherwise, if it's just somebody else on the street or some other person, you try and explain to them, you tell them, they simply will not listen, then you don't need to carry on arguing with them. I don't understand, I'm confused with that other argument about the permissibility of it. Then from what perspective are they wearing it? Who? The people that have the correct aqidah, that it doesn't... Nobody is. That's what we said. Nobody actually wears them. The opinion that it's allowed was not actually implemented. It wasn't implemented. So your question doesn't come into existence in that case. Alhamdulillah. So they said it might exist in a small situation, and then even then some scholars uh, said it's allowed. Only some said Mm, mm, Exactly. So those that say it's not... What do they say about that, even in that small situation where a person does, do they say it's shirk or just haram or 
Yeah, in that situation, then they would apply it to these general narrations. And they would say it, it, it falls under all of them. And so generally, yes, it is still under the same rulings as all, as all the other talismans and everything else. Yakrahuna, we're going to get to it. Ibrahim and Nakhai, Kanu Yakrahuna. Yakrahuna doesn't mean they disliked it. It means Yuharrimuna. When you, when you hear the Salaf saying they disliked something, it doesn't mean they disliked it. Kanu Yakrahuna. Yakrahuna in their context means Yuharrimuna. So Ibrahim and Nakhai and the people and the scholars upon that opinion declared it haram to wear this. So therefore, obviously, they are considering it to be a sin, a wrongdoing, a deviation, haram to wear the, the Qur'an like this, they said. Is the Qur'an not um, a cure only when it's recited? So Not necessarily. Uh, that's the argument. The scholars, they say, it cannot be definitively proven that you can restrict the cure of the Qur'an to its recitation. Uh, the evidences all indicate that. But the other scholars who take a different opinion, they'll say, but there's nothing explicit to say that you can only use the Qur'an in that way. But that's what's indicated, that it's the recitation of the Qur'an. And we're going to get to some of that yet. I was going to ask, how, how would you advise someone uh, who's got these, uh, the Qur'an framed in their houses to dispose of, to dispose of it? Is there a specific way to... Anything it? sacred, then it can be disposed of by burial or burning. Okay, even the big frame, yeah? Yeah, big frame will burn. <laughs> you can use the frame for something else. The frame, a 99-pound frame, yeah. you don't need to get rid of that. But yeah. the paper with the ayat that you're displaying for decoration, they can be burnt. The frame you can use for something else. Uh, but, but I don't have some uh, masjid, some display of like a, a hadith or, or, a, or an ayah. Should that... Should that uh, be applied to them? For a hadith, it's not the same thing. You could replace it with some type of uh, quote, something along those lines. That's okay, that's not a problem. That's not the same as the ayat of the Qur'an. You could replace it with something like that, and that's a, a motivational quote somebody wants to put up. It's possible, but the ayat of the Qur'an, the Sheikh said no. Last one, go on. You also run it in cold water? But that wouldn't dispose of it, would you mean, until it uh, completely dissolves the ink? Yeah. Possibly. I mean, the, as long as it all disappears, if it completely disappears in cold water, the paper is going to disintegrate anyway. If it completely disintegrates, it's gone, then that's okay. Burning and burying is, is the two methods that the scholars always mention, though. Uh, the uh, water one reminds me, they mentioned something about putting it into a river or, or throwing it into some flowing water where it disintegrates in the water, possibly. So I've got a question outside of the lesson. Anybody else? But that was the last one we said. <laughs> <laughs> now somebody else is over there as well. Go on then. Um, it's, not it's not regarding this lesson, but you know, with the, um, with the, with the Sunnah, there, there, are some, there are some that are obligatory and there are some that are not obligatory. What's the, what the criterion used to decide which one are obligatory and which one are not? Like, for example, you know, the, the two rakats after Isha, is, um, and let's say going to bed, not going to bed is seen as something not. Um, obviously not good than an individual that was not to pray two So what was the criterion used to decide which act is? Um, yeah, yeah, I understand, yeah. So there are certain types of sunnah actions that are obligatory. So, oh, no, the way you should phrase it is there are certain things in the sunnah that are obligatory and certain things in the sunnah that are mustahab and recommended, etc. 
That's all learnt and established from the Sunnah and the Hadith themselves. So for example, the example that you gave about the beard, the narrations about the beard, the Prophet makes a command in them. And when a command comes, the fi'l amr, it indicates something to be obligatory. So in the narrations it says, Grow your beards as a command. So when that wording comes as a command, that's one indication that this is an obligation. Unless you find something else which can downgrade that command into a mustahab, then the default is the command remains as a command. Whereas the uh, Sunnah prayers and the Nafila prayers, we know again from the Quran and the Sunnah, the only five obligatory prayers are the five daily prayers. Everything else outside of them are the extra Nawafil and the Sunan. If a person didn't pray them, you cannot say that he's committed a haram action. But if a person shaved his beard, he's committed a haram action. Because Allah commanded us, or the Prophet commanded us regarding the beard, whereas the Sunnah prayers, they are not a command to pray them like the five daily prayers. Because we know in the hadith, the command of how many prayers you have to pray is how many? Five. Just the five prayers. That's all that's commanded in the narrations. That's why some of the scholars, they have a debate and a discussion over whether the Eid prayer is obligatory or not. And one group of the scholars, they say, no, it's not obligatory that a person, if he missed it, there's nothing upon him. Because if you say it's obligatory, you are now making six prayers obligatory. Whereas the Quran and the Sunnah or the Sunnah highlights that there are only five obligatory prayers. So all the Sunnah prayers, you cannot say they are obligatory, that you, it would be haram if you missed them. Because then you'd have 17, 20, 25, lots of obligatory prayers. So in the Sunnah, when you look at the various actions, the way the hadith is explained and the way the sunnah explains it, you will know which ones are obligations, which ones are mustahab, which ones are sunnah mu'akkada, like the witr prayer and the, these two sunnahs are fajr, they should not be missed, they are sunnah mu'akkada, an emphasized sunnah. But if a person missed them, you cannot say it's haram. But all of that type of thing is understood from the sunnah in learning it, studying it, seeing how the narrations are mentioned, what they mention, and that gives you the distinction between the rulings on the different affairs. That's all in fiqh. That's exactly fiqh. Fiqh is that. Looking into all of the narrations and deriving the rulings from those narrations. Who are uh, outside going with you? Ustad, I heard some uh, speech. <coughs> um, someone woke up late and um, uh, they already missed their salah. The time had gone. And, um, you know, I said, like, oh, leave whatever you're going to do for me. Just pray your salah. And they said, uh, oh, no, I've already missed it now. Uh, so they didn't pray? So they just delayed it more because the time had gone. Oh, okay. So a person who misses the Fajr prayer, for example, he gets up and the sun has already come up. So now what is the obligation? He obviously has to pray it. But is the obligation that he must pray it immediately when he wakes up? Or can it be, like this guy said, well, I've missed it anyway, I'm just going to uh, do this and that and have a shower and, and then I'll pray. Because he's missed the actual time anyway. Which of the two is correct? What's the evidence? 
من نام عن صلاتي ونسيها فليصليها إذا ذكرها whoever oversleeps on a prayer or forgets then he must pray when he remembers the hadith says that would indicate that if you've missed a prayer like Fajr and you wake up after sunrise as soon as you wake up and you realize you've missed it you must pray it immediately according to that narration that's what it would indicate there is it's another fiqh issue that does have a debate on it as to whether you can say it's a sin if you don't pray it immediately can you say that it's a big discussion in the books of fiqh can you say it is a sin if that person now takes his time and has a shower and then prays the fajr the, the, I mean, there's no doubt what you should do and what the scholars have advised is upon the hadith, when you remember, pray. Don't say, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to have a shower and then end up forgetting again. So it's not correct for a person to say that and to do that, even though there may be some discussion about the affairs, it's not correct and appropriate to do that. When a person remembers and he knows he's gone out of the time, don't take the chance now, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll pray later. You pray immediately to fulfill that obligation. For men, it is impermissible to wear pure red. Even if you have black and red. No, no, if you have other colors, then it's okay. No, it's okay. The Prophet ﷺ had a red garment with just black lines in it. If you have other patterns in it, other colors in it, then it's okay. But pure red is impermissible. I think they also mentioned pure yellow or orange. Well. The sofar, yeah, the yellowish, the yellow amber kind of color as well is mentioned. That's in the in the books of uh, Kitab al-Libas, in Sunan Abi Dawud, the Tirmidhi, etc., Bukhari, where they talk about the rulings of the types of garments a person can wear. Pure red is impermissible, but if there are other patterns and other colors in it, then it's allowed. If you were in the prayer and urge of needing to go to the toilet came uh, so much so that you would feel distracted in the prayer do you stop the prayer and go to the toilet or would you try and finish the prayer the hadith says that a person uh, should not pray at the time of when he has an urge to relieve himself to use the toilet you're supposed to use the toilet make wudu and then pray so that your focus will then be on the prayer not on needing to use the toilet but if the situation is what? He's in the prayer now and he cannot make it? The urge comes well when he's in the prayer. So uh, I don't know if it's permissible to break off the prayer for that. He comes in during the prayer. An urge comes to him during the prayer. Uh, unless he was in some type of medical problem, then uh, it's unlikely, the situation is unlikely that a person had no need to go to the toilet and as soon as you start praying, you feel like you need to go to the toilet. Unless it was some type of medical issue a bit more heavier. But otherwise it wouldn't be permissible to break off now and say I need to go make wudu again, then come back and pray again. <clears throat> In jama'ah especially. If you're at home, maybe the situation is easier. The nafal prayers, the situation is even more easier. For that one you could do that. But the obligatory prayers, I don't know if that is a reasoning that allows you to break off unless it was severe. It's another staff. If one person on your left is slightly ahead and one person on your right is slightly to the right or there's a space, which way should you go? Uh, work it out from the center the imam is here the rows are then going out from the center either side mm -hmm. so the closer side to the imam carry on joining from that side
it's uh, I don't remember any reasoning in the hadith, but there's a hadith, there's a clear hadith about it, but I don't remember the reasoning if there was any reasoning in the hadith. But you can do that homework. Kitab al-Libas, somebody can check and see if there was an illah, a reasoning given for the pure red. I don't remember any reasoning. Um, uh, this is definitely the last one, go on. This is the last question and you open up something like that. <laughs> that one we're going to cancel it another time. The Prophet ﷺ, he did not violate any rights. You know, to this day, to this day in America, in certain states, it is permissible to marry 12-year-old. Permissible, by law. There are certain stipulations, etc., but by law you can do it. So if that is the case, 12, in, in fact, no. There are some states, I believe, you can double check, there is no age. They have stipulations, permission of the parents and this and that and everything else, and there is no age to it in certain states. And that's in the United States of America today. So if a person is really going to bring up these arguments, they, re they don't really exist. There are examples today, there are examples in history of it. If you're going to give them intellectual examples, because that's how they are bringing their argument to you, then you can show them there are examples amongst the kuffar where this existed in society and it exists by law as a permissible thing today in developed western countries but that's as far as we'll go for today we'll leave it up to there until next week inshallah